Good morning. You guys well? Beautiful day, huh? If you have a Bible, let's go ahead and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2 this morning. Last week we started our summer teaching series that we simply entitled, Where the Wind Blows, um, which is a phrase taken out of John chapter 3, Jesus. He's describing to a man named Nicodemus what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And he begins to talk about a spiritual rebirth, and he talks about the Holy Spirit. And um, if you just simply keep reading the story of God, the rest of the Gospels, the book of Acts, on into the letters written to the first century church, and on and on, you see that even though Jesus ascended into heaven, um, he didn't leave us. He sent another to be with us and to live in us, and that is God, the Holy Spirit. So as a church, we thought, let's take the summer and focus specifically on what it means to be um, filled with the Spirit, to be the church who is um, led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, um, in relationship with Jesus through the Spirit, and all the different elements of being born of the Spirit. There is no script for this. This is not a formula nor a template, um, which I love because I'm not into formulas. Um, I like relationship. And one of the reasons why, mostly in retrospect, one of the reasons why I was so excited to entrust my life and eternity to Jesus was because someone told me that he wants to have a relationship with me. As it turns out, that's exactly true. Um, the Holy Spirit facilitates, maybe that's not the right word, it's too, um, too clinical. The Holy Spirit helps us to have a real relationship with God, with Jesus. So that's what we're talking about this summer. I hope you're into that, because um, that's what we're getting up to. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. I want to read to you um, a relatively large portion of Scripture. I've cut out a couple parts just to sort of maximize our time here this morning. But we're going to begin in chapter 2, verse 1. This is what it says. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly... There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and there were, they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. 
it's 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Quote, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Pray that this morning as we turn our attention to you, Lord, would you help us to fix our eyes on Jesus? Won't you um, open the eyes of our hearts to see you more clearly? Lord, I pray that this morning we wouldn't merely... Um, obtain more content about you, but I pray that we would, we would grow in our relationship with you, that we would experience more of you, that our hearts would be filled afresh with your love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 12 says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What? does this mean? What a great question. What does all of this mean? Uh, by the way, the day that we normally celebrate Pentecost, that was um, three or four weeks ago. We kind of missed it, but I knew we would get, we, I knew we would come back. But this, um, the day of Pentecost, this is um, something Christians have been celebrating, commemorating for uh, yeah, nearly 2,000 years. Every year, we remember there was a day, just as Jesus said, that as the apostles waited in the city, there was 120 of them actually, not just the apostles, that early, small, little family of believers. 
We're told by Jesus, wait in the city. Don't go anywhere. Don't do anything. Just wait. And they waited for 50 days. Penta cost. And on that day, the Holy Spirit was poured out. Something happened, as we just read. Something uh, that left everyone feeling amazed and perplexed. And it begged the question, what does this mean? And Peter stood up and explained. A simple explanation. This is the fulfillment of God's promise. In the last days, according to the prophet Joel, his promise to pour out his spirit on all flesh. And he has done so through Jesus of Nazareth, the man who died for the sins of the world. And yet because he was without sin, death could not hold him down. He was raised up unto new life, elevated to the seat of supreme authority and has begun pouring out the spirit as they could all see and hear on that day of Pentecost. That's what's happening. That's how we make sense out of this moment. And this Jesus, this Jesus was the long-awaited Savior that they had all been hoping and waiting for. And this was also the Jesus that they had crucified. And they were cut to the heart. Verse 37, and when they heard that, they were cut to the heart and said, what shall we do? And Peter, of course, as we just read, says, repent. Turn to Jesus. Turn away from whatever you were trusting in. And based on the context, these are all religious people. Perhaps turn from your trust in personal piety. Turn away from the identity that you have constructed from national identity. Turn from whatever it is, that, that thing that you were once trusting in, and turn to Jesus because he is, in fact, the Messiah. And you crucified him. Now you need to trust him. Turn to him. Be baptized. This is, um, we'll talk more about that in a minute. And receive the Holy Spirit. This is, this is a gift. This is the promise of the Father given to anyone who would say, yes, please, fill me, change me. I want to experience life in the kingdom. Simple, right? This is, this is what's happening. <clears throat> a simple proclamation with far-reaching implications. So this begs the question, what is really happening? Like, that's all good and well. That's actually fantastic, really good, super helpful, good sermon, good on you, Peter. Very simple, very succinct. But what's really going on? What are the implications? When the Holy Spirit was poured out, on that day of Pentecost, the church was born and set on a very specific trajectory. The church was to become the community of the cross. A family of disciples 
brothers and sisters who would practice the way of sacrificial love. And this is how the world was to know that the church belongs to Jesus by the way we love. And this is how the world might know that we are a much forgiven people by how much we love. And this is the great sign of the new covenant established in Christ. A new people, a body of believers brought together, not merely by common language or national tradition or a monolithic culture, not by common ancestry or even a sacred place to gather because they had all that going on. These are all good things, by the way. Gifts to be celebrated. The distinguishing feature of the church, the trajectory of the church... The thing that makes Christianity more than just another political movement or ideological phenomenon, what makes the church evidence that the Holy Spirit is being poured out is when an otherwise dispersed crowd of expats, all lining up to share a religious moment, some with special access to the inner sanctum, Others, not so much, living on the periphery, left out. This is temple life. It's when that crowd starts to become a community of devoted friends, brothers and sisters, forgiven sinners, all with cut hearts, circumcised hearts, to use the Bible word. Lavished with grace, all practicing the way of sacrificial love. That's what's happening on the day of Pentecost. The church is born and set on a very specific trajectory. A community is formed. A crowd becomes a family. And they begin to practice the way of sacrificial love. This is the great miracle of Pentecost. Or to put it another way, it's when the church begins to sound a little bit like this. While I was still a self-absorbed mess, a very difficult person to love, Jesus laid his life down for me. Now please, allow me to pay it forward. Come inside, take my seat, share my meal the promise is for you too and for all who were once far off. A crowd becomes a family. People lining up to simply do their religious duty, go through the motions, go to temple, make the sacrifice, possibly get into the inner court. Many of them would have been left out. They didn't have the money or the right kind of money. They weren't from the right place. They didn't speak the correct language. There was a very sophisticated stratosphere of in and out happening in the temple. And when the Holy Spirit is poured out, all of a sudden the crowd becomes a family. People are cut to the heart. God begins to pour his love into human hearts through his Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. That's Romans 5, 5. We begin to relate to one another as brothers and sisters. 
forgiven people. Humble people. A people who have been loved. A people who were once far off, estranged, in debt to God. Now have been brought near. We're all in. We're all invited to the table. We all get to experience closeness with God and others. Um, Or you could describe it this way. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know, people... People like us, people, people like to build towers, monuments, institutions, as it were. People like to build towers with bricks and mortars, bricks and mortar, with just enough space for only a few at the top. God builds families with people and soft hearts, with more than enough room at the table for those without and who, quote-unquote, don't belong. People build towers with bricks and mortar, with just enough room at the top for a few. God builds families with people and soft hearts, where there's more than enough room at the table for those without and who don't belong. This is what's happening on the day of Pentecost. This is the trajectory of the church. This is the miracle of the spirit at work in hearts. Um, You know, you've probably heard this sermon. In fact, I've said it many times myself. But there's a a wonderful, uh, subtle, maybe not so subtle, parallel that's happening here in Acts 2. Um, Genesis 11 is another story of the Tower of Babel, right? Virtually every, every preacher, theologian, scholar will go, will go here, where I'm about to go. In Genesis chapter um, 11, it's the story that takes place just after the flood, which is actually a picture of baptism. Interesting. And it says that all of the people throughout like the earth, as it were, all spoke one language. And they decided to all come together in this uh, plain called Shinar. And they had it in their mind to build a city with a tower that had its top in the heavens. And they said, Let, come, let's build this tower and make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we're going to be dispersed across the earth and, and it'll be hard to survive. And so they unify. They have a unifying vision. They have a unifying language. And they all come together because they're trying to survive. And they build this tower. And they know intuitively we've got, to, we've got to build up. We've got to somehow reconnect with God, our provider. And they start to build this tower. And we're told that God sees 
what the humans are doing and decides to come down and take a closer look. We're told, we're told explicitly God comes down. They're building up and God's coming down. And he's like, huh, look at these humans go. At this rate, nothing will be impossible for them. And so God says to himself, he says, let us confuse their language so that they'll be dispersed. And he does, and they end up abandoning the building project. And they're scattered throughout. Now, on face value, you're like, gosh, God, like, give a human a break. They're trying to get by. They're trying to build a family. They're actually trying to make their way back to you. And you come down and, like, like a kid who's jealous of, like, the, the cool thing you're building is just, like, just, just knocks it down. You, one could read it that way. Um, the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 11, God meets with a man called Abraham. It's a very small family, just him, his wife, Sarai, his nephew named Lot. And God begins to patiently, systematically work with a family. He says, I'm going to bless you with kids. If you'll trust me, if you'll trust me. Very key. You've got to trust me. Don't start building towers again. Just listen and obey. Trust me. And through your family, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. I will be your God. I will be your provider. I will bless you. Through a family. God's not anti-unity. In fact, to the contrary, Jesus' prayer in the upper room just before he finished his mission and made a beeline for the cross prayed that we would all be one. That's the high priestly prayer. That God's people, his followers, disciples would become one. We would be a real, healthy, united family. That's his prayer. But he wants unity to be done in a very specific way. Because we can build towers, we can build monuments. Heck, we can build giant churches. A mega church. How about that? So we become a mega church? I don't know if we could, even if we tried. We could try. I don't know if I want to try. I don't know if God is trying to build mega churches. What God is building. Now, I don't know that God's anti-big churches. I don't think he is, to be honest with you. But God is radically pro family, relationships. People tend to build towers with just enough room at the top for a few. The leaders, the special people, the elites, those with, those who actually belong. God does different things with unity. He builds family. Instead of bricks, he uses people. Instead of mortar, he uses hearts filled with his love. Soft hearts. We are becoming the sign of God's presence on earth. When the sinner looks to Jesus and asks, 
Is there room for me in your kingdom? And the church, who is the body of Christ, answers with a resounding yes. When someone who comes wandering into this place thinking that there's probably, I probably don't belong here. I've lost track. I long ago lost track of the number of people I've heard say something like, I don't actually belong here. Deep, deep down inside, I know I don't belong here. If I were to be found out, I would be shunned. Maybe they'd let me in to sit in the back because they, they kind of have to. I mean, it is Grace City. I remember when I first became a Christian, um, I, saw, I saw this done terribly. I had something modeled for me, which to this day, um, it's kind of ironic, actually. So I was in this church. I loved my church. I said the fondest memories of my first church as a born-again Christian. Um, there were so many things that God was doing there, like saving me and others. I got baptized in that church, all the things. Um, and there was a few things that we were doing terribly. I remember going to church on a Sunday, and there was this weird unspoken thing where if you were like someone, somebody, a leader, uh, a talented person, uh, if you were in, then you sat on the front row. And I find it hysterically ironic that no one sits in the front row in our church. <laughs> I remember one Sunday getting to church a little bit early because I, I, I figured it out, right? You quickly figure out culture in a space. And I realized, oh, I get it. So it's like all the, the cool kids are sitting in the front row. So I got there early one Sunday, and I put my Bible on the front row in one of the chairs. And I was like, sweet, I got a space. I guess I can, I'm, I'm, I'm in. I've arrived. I'm on the front row. And uh, I go do something, and I come back as the service was about to start to find my little spot and worship. And my Bible's gone. I'm like, what the heck, man? Someone, and someone else had put in their Bible there. I'm like, dude, someone stole my spot. So I'm like looking, looking, looking. Ends up, it's like in the back of the room. Someone took, took my spot. Later on, I had a conversation with someone, with a friend in the church. I was like, man, what's up with that? I, I get to church early. I was so excited to be on the front row because I wanted to be special. And someone moved it. And he was like, well, look, you need to understand. The front row, this is reserved for, you know, like real leaders. And he was being serious. And I bought it. I was like, oh, of course. Like, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm an idiot. Like, of course, of course. I don't belong on the front row. It's hysterical, but not. Um, it was extremely unhealthy. When the person who shows up at church, and for all the obvious reasons, you know, they're, they're I don't even want to go, go through the list. Like the things, like the, 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 pop, the things that are currently popular for the church to point out, be like, well, that, that, and that means like you, you don't belong. When the person who knows they don't belong shows up and musters the courage, like that criminal dying on the cross next to Jesus, Jesus is there room for me in your kingdom? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Is there room for me? 
And the body of Christ responds with a resounding, yes, you belong. You belong. Come inside. There is room at the, in fact, take my seat. Take the seat of honor. I, I, I'll chill in the back. I guess I got something to do. I'm going to clean a toilet or something. I, I, I'll, I'll go serve. Not with this like self-deprecating, like, oh, I'm just, I'm no one. I'm nothing. Like, look how humble I am. That's, that, that would be like the same thing, but on its head. But I'm, I'm here to, uh, to give up my seat, to share my meal, to serve you, to lay down my life the way Jesus laid his life down for me while I was still a wreck, self-absorbed, really, really hard to love. Jesus died for me. Uh, would you allow me the honor of laying my life down for you? Oh, now the spirit is in the church. Now the spirit is filling the body of Christ. What do you think of that? Some of you don't like that. Some of you are like, mm. You can feel it. You can feel the tension in the room. Like, what are the implications? What are you saying? What are you not saying that you're saying? We are becoming the sign of God's presence among us when those who don't belong are invited to join us at the table. And not just in word or a sermon, but rather in time, with affection, with friendship, with listening, with humility, all of the things of sacrificial love, and not just for those who seem like they're worth it, but for the chief sinners, the most difficult, the most insecure, the most bigoted, the most confused, you know, the Peters and the Pauls, those kind of people. Now, now we experience the power of the Spirit at work in the body. And does this mean the church should simply become like some kind of youth hostel where random people just trash the place in the name of quote-unquote grace while like the believers pay, pay the price, cover the cost? You know what I'm saying? This is where the tension lies, right? So if everyone's invited, if those who don't belong are invited to take the seat of honor, does that mean that there's just like, like what happens to the boundaries? What, what does that look like? Does just everyone who wants to come in get to come in and then trash the place? And then morality is out the window and standards are out the window and holiness is out the window and truth is out the window, and leadership is out the window, and authority is out the window, and like all of the things that are actually included a lot in the New Testament. Is that what we're talking about? Do we just become a youth hostel where people get to come in and trash the place and do whatever they want and act however they like and believe whatever they say is true while like a handful of believers get to cover the cost? Yes and no. Yes and no. Yes-ish. Because if we are to embody the way of sacrificial love, if we are to take up the cross, let me be the first to tell you, that's going to cost us a lot. 
And as soon as we think, well, that's not fair, why should I have to pick up the tab? Why should I have to bear the burden of others? Well, welcome to Team Jesus. Welcome to taking up your cross. Welcome to what Jesus refers to as the fellowship of his suffering. Suffering in the name of sacrificial love. Suffering as a demonstration of the gospel. So yes, and no, and no because genuine love always leads to discipleship. Where together we sit down and we open the scriptures. And we we practice submitting ourselves to the authority of Jesus according to the word. So that means we all get in. We're all broken. We all get cut hearts. We're all confronted, lovingly confronted with this is who God says you are. You're a sinner, just like me. And apart from God's grace, um, you will be judged because you too, like me, were born as a child of wrath. And there will come a day when God judges the world and will deal with sin once and for all, whether you're alive or dead. Not according to intentions, but according to his standard, according to truth. Which is why we all need to be rescued. Which is why the nature of the gospel is like incredibly humbling. It just levels the playing field. Not a single one of us is better than another. We all come in broken. We all come in needy. I need to be forgiven. I need to be rescued. And thank God there is a God in heaven whose M.O. is to rescue people like me and you. And to love us, to lavish us in his grace begins to transform us, begins to teach us to live life in a way that actually leads to um, abundance, like real life, whole life, lasting life, which messes with my politics, which messes with my economics, which messes with my sexuality, which messes with my, help me, what does it mess with? Everything. Everything. Oh, and thank God. Thank God. I want Jesus to touch it all. Touch it. Touch it. Touch it. Heal it. Redeem it. Take the good thing that I'm attempting to deify, i.e., make a God out of. Touch it and put it in its proper order so that I might enjoy these things. That I might truly experience life. In his kingdom. So, yes and no. Yes and no. The cross is costly. And genuine love always leads to discipleship. For this reason. Can we stand together, please?
for this reason. I'm about to pray an ancient prayer over our church. Only I have to pray it with a particular kind of voice because it's one of those prayers. Okay, so bear with me. I'm about to get enthusiastic. Maybe. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen? Amen. I therefore, we're not done. I therefore, okay, so that's an epic prayer. I mean, one of the best. That's prayed by a man who knows grace. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, hang on, hang on. Okay, so we just got to, you got to get your head around this for a second. Like, what if God answered that prayer? I think you would. That's, that's like, that's a biblical prayer. God answers biblical prayers. What are the implications? What might happen? Well, here's, I love this. I love this. He prays this prayer. I, therefore, since I know God will answer this prayer and that the fullness of his power, his love, all the things, all the metaphors will become a reality in the church. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, one church and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. I got another prayer. This one's from, from the heart. Lord, I pray that as you fill us with your spirit, as you pour your spirit out again and again and again, Pentecost wouldn't just be something that we, we remember. It would, be, it would be a memory that compels us to lean in, to experience the kind of life that would demonstrate the reality of your presence here and now 
in our lives, in your church, in Grace City. Lord, and I pray that as you fill us with all the fullness of who you are, all of your power, as you pour your love into our soft hearts, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a humble people, a patient people, a gentle people, that we would bear with one another. Lord, when we're being difficult, when we're not getting it right, when we're believing weird things and we're struggling with our our identity and all the things, Lord, I pray that we would bear with one another, walk with one another, speaking truth and love to one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, Lord, that your church would be evidence that we're more than just a religious social club. Lord, we are your body filled with all of who you are. Amen. Okay, thank you for being so patient. Thank you for bearing with me. We're going to worship as we do, uh, one song, and then we're going to do something that we've never done. Um, We're going to all